The following message comes to you from Life Point Baptist Church in Apple Valley, California, where we pray that God's Word is a real blessing to you. So in this time and in this season of Christmas, uh, we often listen to and sing songs that for various culture reasons, whoever decided, we don't necessarily sing or listen to other times of the year. And um, I was thinking as uh, my parents were here, I was thinking about this. Uh, I remember my dad saying uh, when he grew up overseas, he grew up in uh, Lebanon in Beirut, and uh, my grandfather was a, a missionary, a church planner there, and uh, he loved Christmas music. They had records, you know, the big uh, the LPs, and, uh, you know, he loved it, and he said, you know, we're not bound by American culture over here, and so why don't we just listen to it all year round, Right? Like, no one's here telling us we're not supposed to do this. So he's like, let's just make it a thing that Christmas music is, you know, all year round. And so, uh, so they did. And, uh, you know, a lot of the year, especially, you know, it's like, you know, I remember my dad saying, Dad, it's like July, and it's super humid and hot, and I'm sweating, you know, and we're singing Silent Night, or it came upon a midnight clear or whatever, or listening to it in the background. Uh, but there's a lot of songs that, uh, that we sing and that can help us as we meditate and think about Christ and his incarnation. One of them that, especially in recent years, has received a lot of kind of talk and debate uh, among pastors and theologians and different people on social media is the song, Mary, Did You Know? And so it was written uh, 20-something years ago, I think, um, by, of all people, uh, a Christian comedian, right? He's also saying too. Um, but what's often talked about is the fact that uh, I believe it's 17 questions in the song and debated about, is it a, a good and theologically accurate song? Because there were a lot of things that Mary did know, right? So that it's asking her, and she did know that she was birthing the Messiah and all these things. Now, some of the details of his miracles and other things she would not necessarily have known. And uh, my point this morning is not to critique a song, especially if it happens to be your favorite. Um, as an aside, I think often poetry and songs have different forms. And so it could be rhetorical questions that, you know, just like we'd say, did you realize, did you know something when the person clearly does know, but it's, it's uh, praising or, or magnifying what's there. But the, the question that I want us to think about today is um, on the topic of what she knew and how Mary handled and received the message that she was given. How would she view um, this message from the angel about the birth and the person of Christ. And also, why did the Gospel of Luke include some of the information that was there um, about Mary, about her visit from the angel, her visit to Elizabeth, and then specifically her song of praise that is recorded? Um, nine verses in Scripture that are given to her song of praise, also known as the Magnificat. And um, what we can learn from her trust in God and her view of God and the role that God had for her in the timeline of history. And so we're going to focus on verses 39 to 56 this morning. But before we get there, I want us to give a little bit of background. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 1. And um, the, the two main accounts we have of Christ's birth, his coming and his birth, are in the Gospels of Luke and Matthew. So Matthew, as we heard last Sunday night, focuses mostly on um, the Magi, right? The coming 
uh, as they came to worship him. Very little detail to, to the earlier portion when Christ was born, focusing, as many uh, conclude, about his king, the fact that he's king, that he will, he will rule. But Luke um, takes a different approach um, as, the, as the Spirit led Luke to write this gospel account. Uh, it was written, verse 3 says, to, uh, to a specific person as an account to Theophilus, as an account of the teachings and the life of Jesus. And it's interesting that Luke chooses to begin the opening of, of Jesus' life in his account by, by displaying two birth narratives or two stories about two births. And um, also interesting that he didn't start with the announcement of Jesus and about him, but instead to John the Baptist through Zechariah. And so the, the first portion of background I want to give leading up to our text today is uh, the beginning of Luke, Luke uh, chapter 1, which is the announcement of John the Baptist and his birth. And so we have an angel, the angel Gabriel, visiting uh, Zechariah as he was serving in the temple. And um, through, uh, it says here, chosen by Lot, and through other writing and tradition of the time, we know that there was only a certain window of time when these priests would actually go and perform this. And so he was there doing a special service in the temple, and the angel Gabriel comes to him and gives him a message. And just like the angels visiting Abraham and Sarah, they tell him that in his old age, he and his wife Elizabeth are going to have a child. And if you remember Zachariah's reaction... Um, shock and amazement, but he asks the angel, how can this be? He questions uh, how this could take place. Um, after he was troubled by the angel, in verse 18, how will I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in her years. In other words, we're well beyond the, the time period of having a child. Um, one of our, our relatives uh, just found out uh, or we just found out a couple weeks ago um, that they have a, uh, their oldest is a sophomore in college, and they just found out they are pregnant having a baby, right? So shock, right? And well into her 40s, and uh, a shocking announcement, right? But imagine even more so, we don't know the specific age, but likely into his 60s, maybe 70s, um, as, he, as he gets this message. And his question is, how will I know this? How will I know that this is actually going to happen? That you're not just tricking me here or you're just messing with me because we are old. And so the angel Gabriel says, here's the sign. You're not going to be able to speak until the child is born. And so he asks for confirmation and he gives him a sign. And um, this is similar to Gideon's fleece in the sense that Gideon was asking for a sign of something that God had already told him, right? He told Gideon what to do. Gideon doubts, so he asks for a sign. In a similar way here, we have Zechariah doubting, wondering if it's actually going to happen, so give me a sign. In his doubt, he asks for the sign from Gabriel, and Gabriel gives it to him. And so it was a rebuke of his lack of trust, his lack of faith in, in believing this message. And so uh, it says in verse 24, after, the, after these days his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and kept herself in seclusion five months, saying, this is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among the people. So parallel, uh, parallel with other Old Testament passages is where it says the shame was removed. So think of Hannah in 1 Samuel or other passages where she was finally given favor um, by getting um, or having a child. And so we, we open the book of Luke and this gospel account with this, this uh, announcement to Zechariah. Again, an extended passage. So from verse 5 all the way down to verse 25, 
and setting up the forerunner who would come before Christ, that this, this son, John, would have a special role to play. And then, so that's scene one. Then scene two, um, and, and by the way, I guess I should say, before we jump on to scene two, um, Zechariah does get it in the end, right? It, it turns out well for him. He believes, he trusts. And in fact, he has a song of his own um, starting in verse 67. And he has 12 verses in which he says, for example, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people to redeem them. And you, speaking of his son, John, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare his way, to give his people the knowledge of salvation, the forgiveness of sins. And so he did understood. His eyes were opened. He understood the role of the Messiah and what his son would do and play there. And so God is breaking his silence, years of silence from the prophets to say, now I am coming. I'm sending my son and he is going to, to redeem you. He is going to prepare the way to know me. And so the message comes to Zechariah. And now Luke transitions to a second birth announcement. In contrast to Zechariah and Elizabeth, so you have an old couple, he's serving in the temple, um, likely living close to Jerusalem to have access to the temple in that way, and an older couple having birth. And it's clear that they see this as coming from God. But we see other instances in Scripture where people, for example, Abraham and Sarah, who were beyond the age of having children, were given, um, were given birth in this way. And so it's amazing, but not unprecedented. Well, here Luke ter- turns to a birth announcement that is unpre- unprecedented, that no birth announcement in history has come like this one. Um, and we see the announcement to Mary. And so the same angel, Gabriel, it says, in the sixth month, comes to a town in Na- uh, called Nazareth. So a small village, northern Israel, not near the capital, in contrast to Zechariah. And it says in verse 27, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And so now he comes not to an old person, not somebody who is beyond the age of giving birth, but somebody who is young. In fact, from a human perspective, not ready or not at the stage of life and in her condition to have a child yet. And yet the greeting comes, greeting favored one, verse 28, the Lord is with you. But she, that is Mary, was very perplexed, puzzled, troubled even at this statement and was pondering what kind of greeting this was. And often when we see angels coming, one of the first words out of their mouth is what? Fear not, right? Because in the Old Testament, an angel comes and visits. It's not usually a nice, happy greeting, right? It's not a welcome message. You're sitting down and having a meal together. Often an angel is bringing a word of destruction or even actually meeting out justice or vengeance um, himself. And not to mention their, just their presence was, was terrifying. And so um, she comes, she was perplexed and was pondering. And so the angel says, verse 30, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Just like uh, Elizabeth said, she had found favor by being able to have a child and to have this forerunner. In a similar way, Mary has favor with God. Verse 31, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and give birth to a son, and you shall name him Jesus, for God saves, or salvation comes from God. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. So breaking the silence, the the announcement of the forerunner of the Messiah, and now Mary in 
um, in this small town in Nazareth, not in the temple, not in a public place, she receives the message, the most amazing birth announcement, that she is going to bear the Messiah, the long-expected one, the one that generation after generation would come up. And there was a, a common phrase that they would use in Israel and in Judaism, which is, maybe this is the year. As they come to a feast, as they come to the temple, as they come to festivals, looking forward to this coming Messiah, maybe this is the year. Maybe this is the day. Maybe this is the year. Over and over, generation after generation. And now the time has come. She receives this message that the Son of the Most High will come and that she will give birth to this Son. And similar to Zechariah, Mary asks a question. So Zechariah's question was, how can this possibly be? We are old. We are beyond the age of having children. Mary's question was not about old age, but she says, uh, uh, as complex of a problem, in verse 34, Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Beyond the age of having children and not in the state to have children because she was a virgin. And so she asks, how can this be? How can this thing be that you're saying that I will have and bear this Messiah? And so the angel gives an answer in verse 35. The angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High, just like 32, the Son of the Most High, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. For that reason also, the Holy Child will be called the Son of God. The very title of deity and yet he will come to earth. He will be holy. He will be without sin, without blame, without blemish. He will be unlike any other human being who has been born because he will be untouched by sin. Not having a sin nature and not committing any sin. Perfect and flawless because he had to be the perfect sacrifice. But notice he is not only divine, not only the most high, and not only holy, but he is called a holy child. That the Son of the Most High did not come in as a, as a full-blown adult, as a 33-year-old male coming on a horse and coming to reign and to rule. He's coming as holy and sinless and as the Son of God, but He's coming as a child. He's coming as an infant. He will be born just like every other human being is born in entering into the world. And yet, this holy child will be called the Son of God. Mary doesn't ask for a sign like Zechariah, right? She doesn't ask for a confirmation. And yet, the angel Gabriel gives her a sign. In verse 36, And behold, even your relative Elizabeth herself has conceived a son in her old age. And she who was called infertile is now in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. And so, as Mary is, is trying to fathom what this means and the implications and all of the gravity of this matter, the angel says, uh, look to your cousin Elizabeth. Remember her? She's well beyond the age of having children. Um, and no doubt she had grieved and had sorrowed at not having any children of her own. And now, because of God's work, he is, a, he is giving her birth. And in fact, she is already six months along. And he summarizes this promise are the sign and also the promise of the coming Messiah by saying, for nothing will be impossible with God. Beyond the age of having children and not in the state to have children, and yet nothing is impossible with God. 
And so as we think about the incarnation and what it meant for the Son of God to descend and to become human, we could summarize it in many ways, the reality and the gravity of it, that nothing is impossible with God. That God chose from eternity past to have His Son enter the world in this way and to bless all of humanity through His coming. And so in these announcements, we see many parallels between um, what comes to Zechariah and what comes to uh, Mary. For example, the scene is set and then an angel comes. The person fears, the angel gives assurance. The birth is promised and then the child is given a name. The significance of the child and what he will do. A question is asked by both of them to Gabriel and the angel notes the role of the Holy Spirit. And finally, a sign or an instruction is given. And um, a, a note about the word of the angel, that it will happen, that it's not impossible, will come. But there's a difference between these announcements. Two, two main differences. The first is that Jesus is superior to John. You see, the forerunner was, was special. His birth was special. His announcement was special. And his life would be marked out as unique. Okay? Eating honey and wearing camel cloth skin was not normal. Okay? Standing by the river and preaching to people and baptizing, that was not normal. He was marked out as special. And yet, he is called the forerunner or the one who will come before him. This Messiah to come is the Son of the Most High. He is the Most High God. And John, the forerunner, is called the prophet of the Most High, the voice of the Most High, or the spokesperson who's coming before the birth of the Most High. And in fact, um, Zechariah in his song of praise notes this. He says, And you, child, speaking of John, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways. So just as a king comes in and he arrives in a city, a place that he's conquered with an entourage, so people uh, blasting trumpets and people paving the way and and a, a long train to come, so John is going to pave the way. He's going to prepare the way for him to become. Uh, for the Messiah to come. And so Jesus is superior to John. And as we mentioned, he is a holy child. He's without sin, and he is the Son of God. But there's a second significance in their births. You see, Zechariah and Elizabeth's birth announcement is amazing. But as we said, God had similarly opened the womb of other couples in Scripture. Uh, For example, Abraham and Sarah, they were barren. They were not able to have children, and God uh, graciously gave, um, gave them a child. Isaac and Rebekah, for example, it was 20 years into their marriage, and they thought that Rebekah would not have any children, and she was blessed with children. And we also see um, Elkanah and Hannah in the book of Samuel, where God graciously gives birth where um, there was not uh, birth before. And so God had done this in the past. But Mary's pregnancy was unlike anything that has ever or will ever occur. Because her uh, child, the child who would be conceived in her, was not through the normal means. That the Holy Spirit is the one who provided um, through his power and through his miraculous provision for Christ to come and to be human in this way. And so um, the, the two differences here, that Jesus is superior to John the forerunner and that Jesus' birth is like no other. As one uh, theologian says about this, it seems impossible. How can this be? How could this happen that a virgin could conceive and have a child? 
Um, uh, writing back in 1875, this theologian says this, the laws of nature are not chains which the divine legislature has laid on himself. And so often people think of the laws of nature, like gravity and giving birth and all of the things that are set up in order in this world. Uh, It can be uh, seen as chains that are laid upon God. And so he's restrained by these laws. No, it's not like that at all. Instead, these laws of nature are threads which he holds in his hand and which he shortens or lengthens at his will. Because the very idea of birth and the process of it and all of the amazing things that happen with genetics and DNA and 23andMe and all of the things that we can do now and understand down to the molecular and cellular level, all of that was created and thought of by God. And so if he is the one who set up the very means by which we are born, he surely could do something as miraculous like this as a virgin birth. And so this birth is unique. And Mary shows in her response a simple faith and a trust in God's promises. Notice verse 38. Mary said, Behold the Lord's bondservant, speaking of herself. May it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So she said, I will be the servant of God. I will do what God wants me to do. As, as uh, one uh, author wrote, Mary is exemplary in the way she responds to God's message of grace. God can do with her what he wishes. This acceptance is significant, taken at possible personal loss. Right? She didn't know the rest of the story and how all this was going to play out. So imagine the thoughts of, well, what is Joseph going to say? What are my parents going to say? What are his parents going to say? What are all of those old ladies who get together in the morning on the corner in Nazareth going to say, right? This is the scandal of scandals to gossip about and to talk about and all that would happen with their reputation. But he goes on to say, there is a risk in agreeing to go God's way, but as the Lord's servant, she willingly goes. She says, may it be as God has said. And so we see here Mary simply trusting God, a simple faith and a reliance, taking God at his word. And really, that's the same thing that God wants from us today, isn't it? To simply take God at his word. That if he says, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you, that we take him at his word. That even if we feel alone, even if we feel neglected, even if we we receive, uh, we receive a harsh rebuke or receive rejection from someone that we love and care about, that God will always be with us and that we can trust and we can bank on that. And we can know, for example, that God's Spirit is in us, that He can give us peace. No matter the, the tumultuous situation out there with our, maybe our physical health or relationships or, or stress at work or troubling events that are happening, we can know that God has given us His Spirit that we can trust in him. We can have rest in our souls because God is in control and his spirit can give us peace. But will we take God as word? Will we trust him and rely on him and, and lean on him and his promises? That's what we see here in Mary. All right, by the way, this is all introduction. We're getting to our text. The rest of the text is going to go quicker, okay? But leading up to this, this understanding of Mary, now we see her in verse 39 going to visit Elizabeth. Um, We'll read, uh, starting in verse 39. Now at this time, Mary set out and went in a hurry to the hill country, to a city in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Okay? 
So imagine she's just gotten this word from Gabriel, and he says, I'm giving you a sign or an indication that all these amazing things about you bearing the Messiah are going to come true. And that sign is your relative Elizabeth is pregnant, six months pregnant with child. And so, um, and by the way, on the, on the note of the relation between them, the term that's used, sometimes it's translated cousin, it can also refer to a variety of different relatives. And so we're not sure what the connection exactly, whether it's cousin or aunt, etc., but a close relative. And so she gets this message, and what does she do? She runs, it says, she uh, quickly sets out in a hurry to the hill country, close down to Jerusalem in the city of Judah, to see, right? And so imagine she's coming up to the house, and what's the first thing that she sees? Elizabeth, but I mean, let's be honest, what is she looking at? (laughs) Her belly, right? All right, is this true? Is God actually going to keep his word? Can this older lady who is beyond the years of having children, is she actually with child? And of course, as she greets her, she sees Elizabeth, that yes, she's six months along, that she is with child. And here we have both of the birth narratives coming together because we started out with John the forerunner coming, this message to Zechariah. He doubts. He's given the sign. And, um, and then we skip ahead or, or we, we transition six months ahead to Mary receiving this message. And now they've been given a sign. She's been given a sign. And now they come together. And we see in verse 41, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leapt in my womb for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. And so we have a fascinating section here where it says that the Holy Spirit um, filled Mary, and she spoke as if she was uttering words from the Holy Spirit. She was speaking a prophetic word on behalf of God to Mary in her greeting. And we see this, this uh, which if you've had a child, you know that leaping and kicking and pushing right, is a normal thing or a normal stage. And yet, uh, Elizabeth, filled with the Holy Spirit, makes the connection that this leaping in her womb was not an ordinary, you know, it wasn't a uh, reaction to the baby's elbow, right? Or response to what she ate for dinner. That this was actually, um, uh, in a fascinating passage in um, verse 44, it says, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leapt in my womb for joy. Isn't that fascinating? That it says, not only did the baby react to the presence of Mary, who would be the mother of her Lord, she says, but that he actually leapt or kicked or moved out of joy. And you're like, what? (laughs) How could this child, six months in the womb, leap, kick, move out of a a motivation? Like he was moved by something to do this. Well, if you look at, back at chapter 1, verse 15, the angel is describing what John would be like. And notice it says, For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will drink no wine or liquor. And he will be, what does it say? He will be filled with the Holy Spirit after he's born, when he's preaching by the river, while he's still in his mother's womb. And so, again, a, a, a unique birth, okay? A unique 
um, working of God, that he would be filled with the Spirit and with the Spirit's presence while still in the womb of his mother. And so as Mary comes to greet Elizabeth, the baby leaps, moves, kicks, etc. And because Elizabeth's filled with the Spirit, John, it says, is filled with the Spirit. She has the wisdom and insight to know that this leaping or this kicking was a reaction of her unborn baby to the presence of the mother of the Lord, of the Messiah. Isn't that fascinating? And we get back to the word that Gabriel said. We're skeptical. Like, really? Can this happen? What does he say? Verse 37, For nothing is impossible with God. So Elizabeth giving confirmation to Mary, you know, look, I'm pregnant. It really happened. Okay? I'm just like the angel said, I'm six months along. So Mary, you can believe and trust in that God is doing this work in you. And now, as Mary comes, the baby leaps and kicks, and she gives confirmation again to Mary that something special is happening because my baby moved and kicked and leapt, and he did it out of joy. That the Holy Spirit filled this unborn baby with joy and reaction to your presence who would birth our Savior and our Lord. And so she says, he leapt in the womb for joy. And this idea of joy is actually filled in these texts. Um, so we see um, in, for example, in uh, the word to Zechariah in verse 14, what does Gabriel say? You will have joy and gladness. And many will rejoice over his birth. Little did they know that the baby was going to have joy even before <laughs> he came out. And then in Mary's song, which we'll get to in verse 47, my spirit has rejoiced or been filled with joy in God, my Savior. And so here again, we have confirmation that God is at work. God is doing something special, something amazing, something miraculous, and that John is confirming this fact by, by leaping, by moving in joy in her belly. And so Mary, or Elizabeth ends with, blessed is she who believed there would be a fulfillment of what has been spoken to her by the Lord. And it's fascinating that just as um, uh, or sorry, the, the message of Gabriel ends with uh, Zechariah that this is the word of the Lord, that it's confirmed. And then Gabriel to Mary says, this is what God is going to do. Nothing is impossible with God. And then Elizabeth blesses Mary for what reason? What does it say in verse 45? She's blessed because she believes, she trusts, she has faith that what God said he would do, he is going to accomplish. And so just like we ended with um, uh, in the section before about believing and trusting God, that God has given to us a sure word. That um, just as amazing and just as incredible as it is that God would have his son be born through a virgin birth, so it is that we have the gospel of Christ. That we have confirmation through his death and through his resurrection. And even more than that, that God has given us a comforter so that we can know him and so that we can have confirmation. What does scripture say? That his spirit speaks to our spirit to tell us or to confirm that we are children of God. And so God doesn't leave us without witness. He doesn't leave us without hope and without confirmation. We have that same assurance that God is at work, that God will keep his word. And what did Jesus say? That if I go, I will surely come back for you, that he's going to come back for us. And so like Mary, our job, our role is to simply trust that if God says this, he will do it. He will accomplish what he has set out to do. Now, before we get to the final passage, and as I mentioned, this part's going to go quick, I promise. 
um, the final passage of her song, I want to briefly um, just mention the fact that there are certain things that are often held in our view, especially certain religious traditions about Mary, that Scripture does not affirm. And I think coming to this passage and thinking about the Christmas season, it would be helpful for us to think through. So, for example, um, the Roman Catholic tradition, the view of Mary, is that she um, has what is called the Immaculate Conception. Okay, not the Immaculate Reception. Okay, that was a football play. But the Immaculate Conception. And many people, particularly Protestants, if you've grown up in a Protestant church, uh, will take that as, well, they're just saying that Jesus was born of a virgin. But actually, this tradition, um, and Pope Pius um, IX, for example, uh, had this that said that at her conception, she was preserved immune from all stain of original sin. And so the, the traditional Catholic view is, not only was Jesus born of a virgin and preserved from sin so that he could be sinless and flawless, but actually his mother Mary, again, through their tradition, was actually also born of a virgin and was protected or guarded from sin. And we don't have time to get onto the details of how this developed through time and through history, but this is clearly not in Scripture, right? Mary was a normal, common virgin girl in the, in the town of Nazareth. And so um, this was an extra tradition that was added and was expounded on. And then there's another tradition that is held within the Catholic Church, which is her perpetual virginity. That not only was Mary sinless, but that led to the fact that she continued to be a virgin her whole life. And so they held that she did not have any other children with Joseph, that, that Jesus did not have siblings through Mary. And yet, clearly in Scripture, we see mentions of his brothers and his, his family and having children in that way. And so that's clearly not found in Scripture. And then on top of that, they hold a special role for Mary within the founding of the church. And uh, there's an interesting passage in Acts chapter 1, I believe, verse 14, where it says, in the upper room, they were appointing the, the, the new disciple to replace Judas. And it says, the disciples were there, and many women, and Mary, the mother of Christ. And so she was there in the upper room, and likely there for Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came. But that's all the mention that we have about her at that time of the founding of the church. But they hold a special role for her. And so, for example, all of their traditions built over time, such that they hold that as her son was being crucified, she suffered with him and consented to his sacrifice on the cross. And as one of his last acts, Jesus entrusted Mary to be not only into the care of John, but to be the mother of all Christians. And so that she had not only a place as the mother of Jesus the Messiah, but in some motherly role over all Christians. And so, for example, she was there at the founding of the church, they said, and that she was very involved in the, in, the, um, in the founding of that. And in fact, in light of her sinlessness, they hold that her body was assumed at, her, at, um, at the end. When the course of her earthly life, quoting Pius XII, was finished, she was taken up body and soul into the heavenly glory, as if she had a miraculous taking. And again, none of this is found in Scripture. You cannot see from the New Testament where this is found. And so um, we, we can't hold to these if we hold to Scripture. And then finally, they hold that Mary had a specific role in the church today. And so she's described as having a super veneration. That she's not deity, but she's somewhere between human and deity. That she has a special role to intercede on behalf of us because she was the mother of Christ. And so, for example, 
many of the songs and many of the prayers or the things that you'll hear coming out of the Catholic tradition hold her in that type of esteem in which she is above us. And she intercedes for us to Christ and Christ to God the Father. And yet Scripture nowhere leads that and nowhere has that. And so we should set aside those teachings. And so when we see her as being blessed and being praised, it's not as if she is sinless or as she is a type of God or up there with Christ. It's that the blessing is the fact of who she's bearing, that the fruit of her womb is the Christ. And so that is what Scripture teaches, and that's what we should hold to um, as well. All right, now we get to the, the, the conclusion, the, the finale here of Mary's role in the book of uh, the Gospel of Luke here at the beginning, and that's starting in verse 46. So we're going to read this. It's described as the Magnificat, and that's simply the Latin for the opening uh, phrase, which is exalting or magnifying God. And this is the, her, her song, her testimony of praise. So let's read starting in verse 46. And Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has regard for the humble state of his bondservant. Speaking of herself. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is to generation after generation. Remember all those generations who were waiting on him in the past? Now for generation to generation. Towards those who fear him, who worship him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. And he has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty-handed. He's given help to his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, just as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. And so in this praise psalm or this praise hymn, and whether it was spontaneously given in the presence of Elizabeth there, or whether it was later on her journey back, it says she stayed with her three months and returned to her home, at some point she uttered this exclamation or this praise to God. And in this, she revealed her heart and her trust in God and in his word. And so Mary begins this by rejoicing at what God has done for her, that she has blessed her as his servant. We see in verse 46 through 49, that he, the mighty one, has done great things for me by looking on me and looking on her in her lowly estate, thinking of the kindness that God has shown that he has allowed her and given her the privilege of birthing Christ. And remember, like we said, unlike the Catholic tradition there, that it's not as if she has earned this through a sinless work on her behalf, or she's achieved some level to where now she can do this. She's just a young girl in a small town, um, looking expectantly to to be married soon to her, her husband Joseph, to live a normal life, you know, to be a carpenter's wife in this town. And so it is nothing in her Um, that she deserves from this. It is God's power in his work. And a a similar way for us, as we come and approach this song of praise, to think of the humiliation of Christ, his lowliness, that he would stoop so low to become us, to become like us, to be human like us. And we, as as Mary here, a simple bondservant, that, that he would look on us with regard and open our eyes so that we could see and embrace the gospel of Christ. And so we, like Mary, ought to respond in praise that who are we that God would look on us with kindness? If, if you were to know, you know the deep recesses of my heart and vice versa, 
the sin that is there and the temptations and the wrestling that we have at times with our flesh, we would say, who am I? Who am I that God would show favor to me? That God would pour out his kindness and his mercy. And yet we, like Mary, can praise God and rejoice in God our Savior, that he's regarded our humble estate and he has looked on us with kindness and with mercy. And then starting in verse 50, we see her turning um, not just to herself and God's kindness to her, but to all of the ways that God has shown kindness through all of history. And so she says, to generation after generation of those who have feared him. This reminds me of, of the prophet Elijah. Remember Elijah? Remember when he had done this miraculous thing on the Mount Carmel and fire came down and there was a little kind of like a mini revival and they were running away, the false prophets. And then he runs and he hides because Jezebel's still after him. And he gets to a point of just desperation and exhaustion. And he says, God, how could you let this be? I'm the only one here left standing. And in that amazing moment, God speaks to him. He addresses his foolishness and his, 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 uh, his wrong thinking. And he says, actually, he lifts the lid a little bit. And he says, actually, there are how many prophets? One, two, five, seven. Seven thousand. That there are thousands of prophets who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And so, Elijah, you're not alone here. That there are others who have done that. And so God has shown his faithfulness from generation to generation and now he is doing that. And then, verse 51, he broadens it, or she broadens it to all of the things that God has done. And here's what's fascinating. Um, Mary, as she looks at this, um, and, and as we see all of the prophecies, her prophetic thing here, we don't see this happening right away. We don't see that even happening in her day, where all of the rulers are torn down, where all of the proud are brought low. And so she's looking forward to a day when that will happen as we sang and as we, we looked at, a, a day when Christ will establish his kingdom and he will rule in perfection. But notice all of the words, starting in verse 51, all the actions here are spoken of in the past tense. So if you see that in your Bibles, it's in the aorist tense in Greek. And so he has done mighty deeds with his arms. He has scattered those. He has brought down rules. He has exalted those who are humble. And so we kind of scratch our heads and say, well, it seems like if all of these things are future tense, they're happening one day when Christ reigns and when he rules in perfection, why does it speak or why does it sound as if it's a past tense thing? And I think the best explanation here is, just like Paul did several times in the New Testament, it is such a certain thing, it is such a, a final and a definite thing that he will rule, that all of these things will happen, that she speaks of it as if it's happened, as if it is done. So if you remember Paul in Romans, um, in Romans uh, chapter 8, verse 30, he speaks of, here's what Christ has done. He's done this, and he's done this, and done this. And he says, and you are glorified. Well, that hadn't happened yet, right? That hadn't happened yet for those believers. But it's such a certainty. Just like Christ saved you and sanctified you and is doing this work in you, the glorification, when we'll be seated with Christ, is such a done deal and a certain thing. And so Mary here speaks of God's work as a done thing, as a certain thing. And so what are these actions that she's looking forward to, that she's prof uh, prophesying about that Christ will do? So verse uh, 51, mighty deeds with his arm, that God is full of his power, that nothing can stop him. And the scattered, uh, he will scatter the proud and he will bring them down. He will bring down the mighty rulers from their thrones. 
He will exalt the humble. He will fill the hungry with good things. He'll send the rich away empty-handed. And so this contrast, back and forth, back and forth, favor to those who are lowly. He will bring down the proud in their exaltation. And why is this? Or what is it based on? Verse 54, he's given help to his servant Israel. What does it say? In remembrance of his mercy, his kindness. It's not as if Israel deserves it. It's not as if Mary deserves this. We today do not deserve it. We do not deserve his favor and his kindness and all these poured out. And yet, because of his mercy, because of God's kindness, he does this. He stoops to the lowly and lifts us up. And then in verse 55, it's based on his promises, just as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. So Mary is basing all of this future hope as if it's a done deal. It's a certain thing. He's going to do this. He's going to bring the mighty down. He's going to lift up the exalted who trust in him. And it's because of his promises. Remember, her announcement, the announcement to her was based on the word of the angel. It was based on It was based on God's prophetic utterance that you're going to have this child, that she was given a sign, that Zechariah and Elizabeth were given a sign that God will do this work. It seems impossible. It seems to not make sense and to fit together in your head, but trust God. Trust his word that he will do it, that he will accomplish it. And now we have the conclusion of her incredible, exalted song of praise We have her basing all of what God will do and her trust in him and what he will accomplish through this Messiah based on his word, based on his promises, that she has trust and faith that just as she, just as God gave the word to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and all the way through, we could read the generations in Luke um, and, uh, and in Matthew, or sorry, in Matthew, all of the generations, right, from the beginning until the end through Christ. And she says it's because God has promised it, because he has given his sure word that we can trust in him. And so for us, as we think of this incredible announcement that's given to Zechariah, that's given to Mary, and their faith and their trust in him, they're banking on his character and his promises. The question for us today is, will we respond in faith and trust like Mary? Will we respond as Zechariah eventually did to take God at his word. And so God's children ought to respond to life circumstances with praise and trust in God. So who are you leaning on hard today? You know, uh, Proverbs gives us a, a very clear picture of what we ought to do. Trust in the Lord. Don't rely on yourself. Don't lean on your own understanding, but instead rely on him and he will direct your paths. So who are you leaning on today? Are you leaning and resting on what you can control with your hands, with your mind, with your schedule? If it's here on my phone, in my calendar, I can bank on it. I can know it's going to happen. I can, I, I can have this surety, which, man, the last year and a half's blown that out, right? <laughs> Even ser- service planning. All right, who's going to be here? Who's not sick today? Who's, you know, how can we make this fit? How can we, right? We think we have control. We think we have it all together. But instead of trusting in what we can touch, what we can feel, what we feel like we can have control in, instead we need to lean heavy on God, to rest in him and rest on his promises, to trust in him and his sure word. And if you're here this morning, hearing about the birth of Christ and this message to Mary and this amazing announcement, but you have not put your faith and your trust in Christ, as Mary and as Zechariah did who leaned and put their faith and trust in all that God had promised, 
that today is the day in which you can place your faith in Him. Mary here looked forward to the final day where Christ accomplished this in His reign and rule. What she didn't know, okay, and this is where the song is helpful and hints at, is all of the little valleys in between, right? That Jesus would suffer and how He would be denied and how He would be crucified and what it meant for Him to be the suffering servant. But that's what Christ did on our behalf. He did that so we can know Him, so the gap between us and God can be bridged, so that our sin can be removed, and you can trust on Him today, that you can put your faith and your trust in Christ as Savior and believe on Him. And for the rest of us, just a challenge that, like Mary, who grew in her faith, grew in her trust and reliance um, on God, and, and it was able to end with this praise and trust in God that we too can root our lives and our trust in God, that he will not fail us, that he is reliable, just like he fulfilled all of the signs to Zechariah and to Mary and all of the prophecies leading up to his birth so we can trust in God. He will not fail us. And so we can lean heavy on him and trust him. So I pray that that is our heart, that we will lean and rely on God. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you so much for um, your creative and and beautiful masterpiece you've given to us in your word that as the Gospel of Luke lays out these these messages, these proclamations, and as we see the response of Zechariah and Mary and their eventual faith and trust in you, placing themselves as your servants, God, we see our own need to do that. We see the call for us to rely on you, to not lean on our own way, our own understanding, our own wisdom, but instead to declare that you, are, that you are worthy of our trust, that you're worthy of our praise. And we ask, God, that you would help us to do that. Help us to lead obedient lives that rest in you, that we look at your word as a sure thing, just like Mary looked at the future reign of Christ in justice and peace as a sure thing, as a done deal. So we will rest on your word, that it is sure, that it is uh, for sure, and we can have our confidence in it. So we thank you, God, for the work you've done in us. Help us to respond to life circumstances like Mary in praise. That she didn't know all the answers. She didn't know all of how it would play out, and yet she rested in you. Help us to have that simple trust today, to rest on you regardless of the circumstances around us, regardless of how we feel in the moment of suffering or pain or sorrow, that we would rest in you and trust in you. And we ask, God, that you would do this for your glory. And we long for the day when we can reign with Christ in perfection, with no sin and no suffering, no sorrow. And until that day, God, help us to be faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.